made their fury manifest. The success of this great and noble undertaking was a triumph of democracy over totalitarianism. President Eisenhower said he wanted democracy to survive for all ages to come. So do I. It is my fondest hope that this program, which in its essence is a love song to democracy, will make a small contribution to that great goal. From Simon & Schuster Audio, The Victors, Eisenhower and His Boys, The Men of World War II, by Stephen Ambrose, read by Cotter Smith. At the beginning of World War II, in September 1939, the Western democracies were woefully unprepared for the challenge the totalitarians hurled at them. The British army was small and sad. The French army was large but inefficient and demoralized. While the American army numbered only 160,000 officers and men, it ranked 16th in the world, right behind Romania. The totalitarian armies of Imperial Japan, the Soviet Union, and Nazi Germany, meanwhile, larger and better prepared than their foes, were winning great victories. The only bright spots for the democracies were the British victory in the Battle of Britain in the summer and fall of 1940, but that was a defensive victory only, and Adolf Hitler's decision to attack his ally Joseph Stalin in the spring of 1941. Because of these events, the apparently certain totalitarian victory of May 1940 was now in question. Perhaps the democracies would survive, perhaps even prevail and emerge as the victors. That depended on many things, but most of all on the abilities of the British and Americans to put together armies that could challenge the Japanese and German armies in open combat. That required producing leaders and men. Dwight David Eisenhower became the supreme commander of the British and American armies that formed the Allied Expeditionary Force. His personality dominated the AEF. In the vast bureaucracy that came to characterize the high command, he was the single person who could make judgments and issue orders. He had many high-powered subordinates, most famously Generals Bernard Law Montgomery and George S. Patton. But from the time of his appointment as Supreme Commander to the end of the war, he was the one who ran the show. Eisenhower was a West Point graduate, 1915, and professional soldier. When the war broke out, he was a lieutenant colonel on the staff of General Douglas MacArthur in the Philippines. By mid-1941, he had become a brigadier general and chief of staff at the Third Army, stationed at Fort Sam Houston, Texas. He was there that December 7th. On December 12th, he got a call from the War Department ordering him to proceed immediately to Washington for a new assignment. Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall needed, he said, assistants who will solve their own problems and tell me later what they've done. After interviewing Eisenhower, he placed him in charge of the Army's Philippines and Far Eastern section of the War Plans Division. Over the next two months, Eisenhower labored to save the Philippines. His efforts were worse than fruitless, as MacArthur came to lump Eisenhower together with Marshall and President Franklin D. Roosevelt as the men responsible for the debacle on the islands. 
But throughout the period, and in the months that followed, Eisenhower impressed Marshall deeply. So deeply that Marshall came to agree with MacArthur's earlier judgment that Eisenhower was the best officer in the Army. Marshall was not an easy man to impress. He was a cold, aloof person, remote and austere. His sense of duty was highly developed. He made small allowance for failings in others, but to those who could do the work, Marshall was intensely loyal. He also felt deep affection toward them, though he seldom showed it. After ten years with MacArthur, Eisenhower found Marshall to be the ideal boss, both as a man to work for and as a teacher. The way he exercised leadership coincided nicely with Eisenhower's temperament. He never yelled or shouted, almost never lost his temper. He built an atmosphere of friendly cooperation and teamwork around him, without losing the distinction between the commander and his staff. In every respect, Eisenhower was exactly the sort of officer Marshall was looking for. By the beginning of April, Eisenhower had 107 officers working directly under him. As his responsibilities included both plans and operations, he was concerned with all Army activities around the world, which gave him a breadth of vision he could not have obtained in any other post. Having been a staff officer for so long himself, Eisenhower was acutely aware of the indispensability of the subordinates in the field commands who carried out his orders. Always. His emphasis was on the team. While the Americans badly needed Marshall, Eisenhower, and other generals to take command, they needed even more desperately to build and equip an army. This was done through conscription and the tremendous output of American industry, which had been flat on its back in 1939, but was, by the beginning of 1942, turning out the tools and weapons of war in an ever-increasing, record-setting pace. The creation of the U.S. Army in 1942-43 was one of the great achievements of the American Republic in the 20th century. The beginnings of a company of elite volunteers, part of the 101st Airborne Division, is a good example of the achievement. The men of Easy Company, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division, U.S. Army, came from different backgrounds, different parts of the country. Some were desperately poor, others from the middle class. One came from Harvard, one from Yale, a couple from UCLA. Only one was from the old army. Only a few came from the National Guard or Reserves. They were citizen soldiers. The men who formed the original company at Camp Tukoa, Georgia, were from widely different backgrounds, but they had some things in common. They were young, born since the Great War. They were white, because the U.S. Army in World War II was segregated. With three exceptions, they were unmarried. Most had been hunters and athletes in high school. They put a premium on physical well-being, hierarchical authority, and being part of an elite unit. They were idealists, eager to merge themselves into a group fighting for a cause, actively seeking an outfit with which they could identify, relate to as a family. They volunteered for the paratroopers, they said, for the thrill, the honor, and the $50 for enlisted men, or $100 for officers' monthly bonus. But they really volunteered to jump out of airplanes because they wanted to make their Army time positive, a learning and maturing and challenging experience. Also, they knew they were going into combat, and when the shooting started, they wanted to look up to the guy beside them. Not that they knew much about Airborne, except that it was new and all-volunteer. 
They had been told that the physical training was tougher than anything they had ever seen or than any other unit in the Army would undergo. But these young lions were eager for that. They expected that when they were finished with their training, they would be bigger, stronger, tougher than when they started. And they would have gone through the training with the guys who would be fighting beside them. Of that summer of 1942, Private Carwood Lipton recalled, The Depression was over and I was beginning a new life that would change me profoundly. It would all of them. The company, along with Dog, Fox, and Battalion HQ companies, made up the 2nd Battalion of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, PIR. The 506th was an experimental outfit, the first parachute infantry regiment in which the men would take their basic training and their jump training together as a unit. It would be a year before it was attached to the 101st Airborne Division, the Screaming Eagles. The officers were as new to this paratrooping business as the men, they were teachers who sometimes were not much more than one day ahead of the class. The original non-commissioned officers, NCOs, were old army. Private Walter Gordon remembered, We looked up to them as almost like gods, because they had their wings. They were qualified jumpers. Later, looking back, we regarded them with scorn. They couldn't measure up to our own people who moved up to corporals and sergeants. Few of the original members of Easy made it through Tokoa. Lieutenant Dick Winters remarked, Officers would come and go. You would take one look at them and know they wouldn't make it. It took 500 officer volunteers to produce the 148 who made it through Tokoa, and 5,300 enlisted volunteers to get 1,800 graduates. The task of Regimental Commander Colonel Robert Sink was to put the men through basic training, harden them, teach them the rudiments of infantry tactics, prepare them for jump school, and build a regiment that he would lead into combat. We were sorting men, Lieutenant Clarence Hester recalled, sorting out the no-guts. An outfit in England with similar pride and rigorous training was D Company of the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry called the Ox and Bucks. It was part of the 1st Airborne Division. D Company's commanding officer, Major John Howard, was allowed by his colonel to set his own training pace and schedule. Initially, he put the emphasis on teaching the men the skills of the light infantrymen. But most of all, Howard put the emphasis on learning to think quickly. They were elite, he told the men. They were glider-borne troops, and wherever and whenever it was they attacked the enemy, they could be sure the premium would be on quick thinking and quick response. Howard's emphasis on physical fitness went a bit beyond what the other company commanders were doing. It went beyond anything anyone in the British Army had ever seen before. The regiment prided itself on being fit, but all were amazed by and a bit critical of the way Howard pushed his fitness program. D Company's day began with a five-mile cross-country run done at a seven- or eight-minute-to-the-mile pace. After that, the men dressed, policed the area, ate breakfast, and then spent the day on training exercises, usually strenuous. In the late afternoon, Howard insisted that everyone engage in some sport, any sport that would keep his lads active until bedtime. Twice a month, Howard would take the whole company out for two or three days doing field exercises, sleeping rough. He put them through grueling marches until they became an outstanding marching unit. 
All the officers, including Howard, did everything the men did. The sports and the mutually endured misery on the forced marches brought officers and men closer together. When his colonel gave him even more flexibility and the transport to make it meaningful, Howard started taking his company to Southampton or London or Portsmouth to conduct street fighting exercises with live ammunition in the bombed-out areas. Howard was putting together an outstanding light infantry company. Howard also set out on his own to make D Company into a first-class night fighting unit. He reckoned that once in combat, his troops would be spending a good deal of their time fighting at night. He would rouse the company at 2,000 hours, take the men for their run, get them fed, and then begin 12 hours of field exercises, drill, the regular paperwork, everything that a company in training does in the course of a day. After a meal at 1,000 hours, he would get them going on the athletic fields. At 1,300 hours, he sent them to barracks to sleep. At 2,000 hours, they were up again, running. This would go on for a week at a time at first. By early 1944, as Private Wally Parr recalled, we went several continuous weeks of night into day, and every now and then he would have a change-around week. We got quite used to operating in nighttime, doing everything in the dark. D Company was developing a feeling of independence and separateness. All the sports fanaticism had produced, as Howard had hoped it would, an extreme competitiveness. The men wanted D Company to be first in everything, and they had indeed won the regimental prizes in boxing, swimming, cross-country, soccer, and other sports. The ultimate competitiveness would come against the Germans, of course. D Company wanted to be first among all the glider-borne companies, to be a part of history. In the invasion of France, whenever that came, Airborne troops would be at the van, almost certainly behind enemy lines. It would be a heroic adventure of unimaginable dimensions. And it was obvious that the best company would have the leading role. That was the thought that sustained Howard and his company through the long, dreary months of training, now stretching into two years. To a man, they were aware that D-Day would be the greatest day of their lives. Eisenhower had concluded that the correct strategy was to defeat Germany first, on the grounds that the Germans were the main threat, that it was imperative to help keep the Red Army in the war by putting pressure on Germany from the West, and that once Germany was defeated, the Americans could go over to the offensive against the Japanese. He recommended to marshal a program. Spend 1942 and the first months of 1943 building an American force in Britain, then invading France. Marshall agreed and told Eisenhower to prepare a draft directive for the American commander in Britain. 